The reading of God's Word today is from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 6. So, chapters 11 and 12 of Isaiah. These are familiar readings from Christmas. So let me just tell you, first of all, that when you hear the word, the name Jesse, I realize a lot of you don't know, I mean, we have Jesse Dershide. He's not talking about Jesse Dershide. He's not talking about uh, any of our Jesses or Jessies. Jesse is known, the only thing we really know about Jesse is that he was the father of King David. All right? And instead of just saying King David, He's talking to Jesse because he's talking to, Isaiah is referring prophetically to the whole family, the whole dynasty of David that included his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and so on, that Jesse was the father and that that whole line extended out to Jesus Christ himself that Jesus Christ was born into the family of Jesse. So that's who Jesse is when you hear the name Jesse in this prophecy. And second of all, a stump. Uh, What is this about a stump? It shows up if you listen to Handel's Messiah, you listen to the scripture uh, uh, passages, you frequently hear of a shoot that will spring up from the stem or the stump of Jesse. Now we live up in a forestry area. Uh, uh, you're, You're used to a clear cut. You know what it looks like. You go up there and see it. All of a sudden, something that uh, a week ago was uh, uh, 15, 20 acres of huge spruce and pine or popple have all been laid low. And there's nothing but stumps in the field. And, it, and it's not a, it's, there's not a feeling of, of, ooh, I feel all Christmassy seeing stumps. You know, It's, it's a feeling of desolation of loss, that these trees have been harvested, but it, it, it puts, it's like a scar, a, sc- a scar on the landscape, and all you see is all these stumps. Now, if it's popple uh, or birch, then sooner or later what will happen is you'll see branches springing up from those stumps. But the point is that the stump of Jesse basically is the sawed-off line of the royal family of Israel. The failure of the royal family, starting with King David, the failure of the human dynasty of David to be faithful to God and to shepherd Israel as God had intended. God sawed them off, and there was nothing but a stump, but a shoot sprang up out of that stump. And who is that shoot? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Okay. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, 
and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. They'll come back to the root. Who will stand, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up the standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be, and Ephraim, by the way, is another name for the northern tribes of Israel. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not be, harass Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west and together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind, and he will strike into its seven, into the seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The word of the Lord. Now this is, a, this is in essence, this is a, a whole piece of prophecy that is referred to whenever you hear the prophecies that you see on Christmas cards are here spoken of in Christmas sermons. This is the whole prophecy that is related to uh, the stump of Jesse. It is a prophecy of hope to any who will listen. 
And you can't help but feel that there's good things. Even that talks about God's wrath, God destroying wickedness, God stopping evil in his tracks. Still, the overall message is this idea of what we call the peaceable kingdom on God's holy mountain. It is a prophecy of hope to any who will listen. It is a prophecy of promise to those who will listen and obey, who will listen and have faith and trust and to subject themselves to the Spirit of God who makes all of this possible. And it is a worship song of salvation. It's a prophecy of hope to those who will listen. And that's the very first part, this first nine verses of Isaiah. Verse five in particular is about this great king that will come. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Righteousness is the capacity to always do what is right and what is good, regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the circumstances. And to, and to know what is right and what is good. Faithfulness is the capacity to be utterly trustworthy and true, so that what you say has a direct correlation to what you do, and, <clears throat> and it doesn't fail. There's no hypocrisy in it. The coming king will possess both righteousness and faithfulness in a spirit of complete and perfect integrity, without hypocrisy or contradiction. But at the same time, when we try to do this, we frequently become, we, we, because we have to pay attention to rules and laws outside of ourselves, we are trying to, like putting on our, when we were little and we put on our father's shoes to pretend to be like him, and they didn't really fit all that well, and we frequently tripped while we were walking in them. Righteousness for us doesn't come naturally, it doesn't fit naturally, it doesn't hang naturally, and we frequently become very, uh, if we want to be righteous, we become very hidebound and with rules and regulations. And oftentimes it is, it's more obsessive. It lacks grace. But this coming king will not be a slave to pious rigidity or obsession, which can imitate integrity. Rather, his righteous deeds and faithful persistence will flow from who he is not from external laws that govern him, but from the light and life that are his being. His kingdom, security, and safety will characterize this king's kingdom. And as I read this over, as I, I, I said it to myself when I uh, preached it this morning to the empty pews, I thought, you know, safety, this, safety is overrated. Safety is something of a cloister. It's a shell. It's more like a bunker. This is more than just about safety and security. This is about universal brotherhood, about a fellowship between all creatures who previously had to survive by killing other creatures. And all of that will be resolved in the new kingdom. All of the animosities, all of the necessity of death, in order that others might live, that will be gone, that will be changed. That's going to be something bigger than just safety. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The word translated 
dwell. When it says the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the word translated dwell is most often translated as sojourn. Sojourn means, and is most often translated in English to mean to dwell as a stranger or a foreigner. And that's the context the word is usually used in. To dwell as a stranger or a foreigner among a people whose hospitality you must depend on. So in this upside-down kingdom that is different than anything that we can imagine given our current history and our current experience of nature, in this upside-down kingdom, the wolf will depend on the hospitality of the lamb. And both the wolf and the lamb will depend on the goodwill and wisdom of a child to lead them. Instead of the arrogant sophistication, smug cynicism, and the ceaseless violence that characterize the adult kings of this world. The coming kingdom of the righteous king will be full of what Jesus referred to as the childlike knowledge of the Lord, like waters cover the surface of the sea and fill the canyons. The fullness of God will, be, will overflow in this kingdom. It is this full knowledge that the Apostle Paul references when he prays that every believer, in in, in Ephesians 3.19, that every believer would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, which is way bigger than we can take into our head. We could know it, but it's more than knowing. It's living. It's, it's, it's breathing it in that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So this is a prophecy of hope to all who would listen. Even though it's all about a stump. But it's about a stump where a root is producing new life and a stem, a shoot, it is a promise, a promise to those who will listen and obey, who will enter in to be ruled by that king, who look forward and start to act as if that kingdom was the home that they were expecting and waiting for, despite whatever dire circumstances surround us. Let me read chapter 11, verse 10 and 11 again. Then in that day the nations, and whenever it says the nations are the people, it's talking about Gentile nations. It's not talking about the Israel uh, or Judah. So in that day, the Gentile nations will resort or will turn to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover with a second time with his hand the remnants of his people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will lift up a standard for the nations, again the Gentiles, and assemble the banished ones of Israel, the promised people of Israel, and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This king is both the root and the shoot. The root and the stem of Jesse's. As the root, he is the source of Jesse. He's the source of all creation. As the shoot or the branch of Jesse, he is the final and most accomplished child 
of Jesse's whole family. He is Jesus Christ. He will gather to himself, according to this prophecy, both the faithful amongst the Gentile nations as well as the dispersed remnant of Israel. The faithful Gentiles, or the church, and the faithful remnant of Israel are two distinct groups. Both will respond to the lifted banner, the flag that will fly, that will be the flag of the Messiah. But isn't Israel cut off? Doesn't the Bible teach us that the church has replaced Israel? Well, it's true that the Apostle Paul did teach that practically speaking, the church has replaced Israel as the, God's human ambassadors to call the world to repentance and to trust in his salvation. But in Romans 11, Paul reveals the mystery that Israel has a future as a people, not because of their capacity, any human capacity to organize and to renew their national status. They have a future as a people because God remembers his love for their forefathers, because God has made oaths that he will not abandon, and because human disobedience and faithlessness will never be the last word. God's sovereign grace and mercy will be. In Romans 11, 28 to 29, Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We're told in this, then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. And again, Israel had split before they were dismembered and sent into exile, they'd split into two kingdoms. Israel, which was the northern ten tribes, and Judah uh, and Benjamin were the southern two tribes who remained loyal to David. Okay, and you don't have to remember all that, but there was tremendous animosity, like in any dysfunctional family, or in a lot of families at some point in time, where there's friction between the siblings, there was friction in Israel. But it's going to be healed when the king comes. Israel's old tribal jealousies and conflicts will be resolved and reconciled into a united family, and they will defeat their old enemies and take their ordained place without opposition. God will raise his hand on their behalf, just as he did at the edge of the Red Sea. But this time, he will make a way for Israel to gather from every country in which they were exiled and receive the fulfillment of all God's promises to Mount Zion. But the greatest obstacle to their return is not a river or a mountain or a sea or a canyon. The greatest obstacle to their return is the same obstacle for our coming to God. It is their sin. And we're told in chapter 12, verse 1, then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away. God has ceased to be their judge and is now their savior. Israel will be forgiven and united along with children and a family they had no idea that they were a part of. The faithful subjects of the root and the shoot of Jesse throughout 
the Gentile nations, the church. The faithful Gentiles and the faithful remnant of Israel, it appears, will share the same road home to Zion. As they return home, they will say and sing the words that are in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 12, 1 to 6 is a hymn with two verses. Verses 1 to 3, is one, uh, verses 1 to 3 are the first stanza of the song, and 4 to 6 are the second. The first three verses of, that we read, uh, that I read part of just a moment ago, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is the dawn of a rescued people, full of gratitude rather than a rebellious people, reserved for judgment. The focus here, again, is what, on what God has done. When God's people focus on their problems, they find hopelessness and fear and panic. When God's people focus on their needs, they become selfish and greedy. But when God's people focus on God's goodness and God's faithfulness, they find the courage and the strength to endure hardship and even God's rebuke. They find hope for a future that is worth staying faithful for, regardless of the cost. They find direction for daily work that imitates the Father and pleases Him. They grow in obedience, not just being hearers of the word, but doers also. Ancient Jews, hearing this song of hope from Isaiah, would wonder how in the world God managed to forgive us and yet to remain holy. What act of sacrifice and obedience would pay such an enormous debt that they had before God that we all have? How could God be merciful but remain holy? Later in chapter 53, Isaiah will prophesy of a mysterious man of sorrows who will be worthy to restore peace and joy in the heart of God and therefore between us and God. Here Isaiah says twice, he has become our salvation. God doesn't make our salvation. He is our salvation. And that's why it's so important, as Jesus says, to abide in him. Not to just buy into a lifestyle or a group of, uh, of ethics or moral absolutes. But to abide in the person of the God who is our salvation. The response of Isaiah and the faithful remnant of hearers and doers of the word is, I will trust and not be afraid. They will draw from the deep springs of God's salvation. And in those last three verses, the song changes from God has saved us to God will save you. God's people are meant to be sustained by God's salvation so that we can call the whole world to drink from the same healing springs that saved us. It is part and parcel of our salvation. If, if we don't want to reach out to tell others of the good news, then there's reason to believe that we still don't understand how great that good news is and how deep our need of it was. The song turns to a, a, an expression of personal thanksgiving for the, and a, a joyful shout of evangelism. Make known his deeds among all the peoples. 
Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy. Israel exists, Israel's existence and the church's existence has always been meant to be to testify to the righteousness and the faithfulness of God and the whole world, that the whole world might trust and not be afraid. I think the evangelical church in America needs to repent. I think we've spent too much of our passions, too much of our resources, too much of our time advocating something other than the person of Jesus Christ. As I've said before, I'm deeply concerned that if you were to ask anybody on the street, when I say the word evangelical, what name comes to mind, I wonder how many names they would go through before they finally got to the name of Jesus Christ. I think that we have built idols in the last six to eight years, idols that we need to repent of and to get our mind and our game back on the fact that the second verse of our song, after we're thanking God for the salvation he's given us, is to the world saying, come in and join us. Because this is where salvation is. It's nowhere else. It's not in the root of Jesse. Whatever political root you're looking for, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. How is it possible that after 2,000 years of dispersion and assimilation into different cultures that God knows where the remnant of Israel is and how he will bring them all in. People talk about the lost tribes of Israel, about the lost 10 tribes. They're not lost to God, apparently. Apparently, God knows where all of these people are. And it would be like going up on Pincushion Mountain and taking a big bag of popcorn and just throwing it into the air on, a, on a, a windy day and having that popcorn scatter to the winds. And then to climb down off the mountain and try to go out there and pick the popcorn up and put it back in the bag. They're so scattered. They're so there is no way for us to tell where they are because we don't see the heart. God does. And God says that I don't see any problem here. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back. I have determined I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. How many times do we deem a project impossible? How many times do we deem a person to be hopeless, a hopeless cause, lost in the darkness and the hopelessness of their own bad choices, wrapped up and, and protected from any intervention by their own self-pity. How often do we look on an entire group of people and think that the wreckage of that group, whether it's a family or a culture or a whole society, to say that everything about that group of people is unrecoverable, just write them off. That's because our imagination is, first of all, very selfish. And one of the things we get out of it is that we have somebody, it's, it's as, Im, as important as looking up to somebody is for us to learn how to act in the right way. We find it emotionally, and this isn't right, but it's what we do, very important to find people we can look down on so we feel encouraged that at least we're not as bad as those people. And in our mind's eye, this is our imagination, and yet God looks beyond all of that. 
He loves, and not just a sappy Hallmark card love. God loves, meaning he came, he listened to, he walked amongst, and he died at the hands of, and then died for all of these hopeless people, all of us. If God has not given up on the obstinate people of Israel, whose faith was so crippled and diseased that they insisted on executing him with great humiliation and great suffering, if he hasn't lost track of them as they've been dispersed for 2,000 years everywhere around the globe, if he has not given up on the obstinate people of Israel, then there is hope for every dysfunctional people, no matter how big their group, for every hopeless sinner, and for every one of us. We have a message of hope for all nations and for every person. It is not our message. We didn't compose it. We don't own it. It is God's. It is all his doing, but he has ordained us to tell his story to the world. About 12 years ago, a a man in his 70s, so even more ancient than I, was in a town in southern Uganda that was even that, that made the city of Graham Ray look like a metropolis, a thriving metropolis. And he went there to a, a, a clinic run by Benedictine sisters, and there was a tiny shack of a building that was, there were women having babies, they were literally next to each other on the floor in this clinic because there was no room. And there was an unfinished um, a birthing unit, if you will, an unfinished building, which in Africa is just about every building project not funded by the Chinese, an unfinished building that was started years ago but not completed. And this guy who was tired and worn out at the end of a journey that had really not much to do with this clinic at all, and he was worn out, he was sick of eating goat meat, he was sick of eating rabbit stew, he wanted to go home to his own bed, he heard God, he he heard God say, we're going to finish this building. And he said that out loud to the sisters who were there. And he was as shocked by what he heard himself said, say as the sister was. And he came back. And Gordon Lindquist, geez. I heard his story when he first came back. I was leading over at Jim and Jackie's house. And we were having a nice dinner over there. I was pretty new up here, Gail and I both. I think it was maybe our second year. And Gordon came over because he wanted to just tell us the story about where he had been and what he had done. And he told us this story I just told you. And he raised, I think it was thirteen dollars or $14,000 to finish that clinic. Then he raised another 60000 to build an operating room and a reservoir to hold potable water. And then because you can't get a surgeon to come out to a hospital if there's nowhere to live, they had to build a hospital for next, another umpteen thousands of dollars. They had to build not a hospital, a a manse, a parsonage, if you will, a, a surgeon's mansion. 
And if you were to ask Gordon, Gordon, how did you do that? How did you raise all that money? He'd say, well, I didn't. I just told the story. That's all I did. I went around to people who would listen, and I told the story. And God raised the money. That's where we're at. We have this extraordinary abundance of riches that is the salvation of God. We're not expected to sell the world. We're not expected to answer every question posed by differing theologies or hostile worldviews. We're, we're called on to tell the story. God's story, our story with God. He'll do the rest. When I think of these dispersed people, I think of a hopeless cause, how will he ever find all of those people nestled away, dissolved in all kinds of different cultures in different countries? How will he bring them all back? And this is just an image of the God who will do what is impossible because he wants to do it. Our God has prepared salvation for all who will trust him. His holy mountain will be a wonder of reconciliation because of what Jesus has done. He who is both the root and the branch and the fruit of Jesse's otherwise failure of a family. This is the story that we need to tell others. We are all Jesse. We are hopeless. We are burned off stumps that God will infuse with his spirit, with his salvation, and with the light of his life. And I want you to remember that as we gather now at the Lord's table to celebrate what Jesus has done, to feast on the abundance that he has given us. And today maybe think about a neighbor or a friend or a family member, somebody we work with, someone who... We, whose sphere intersects with ours, someone that we can tell the story to.